And we welcome you to the series that we've been doing the last several weeks called Mind Games. You see on the screen how to think for and about yourself. I'll tell you where we are in that in just a moment. Want to remind you of a few things very quickly. One is this coming Saturday, men, this coming Saturday, we have some landscaping to do outside. And we are going to be supervised by a landscaper, professional landscaper. Uh, Sandra Gorham in our church works for a landscaper and her boss, the owner of the company, between Scotty, the boss, and Sandra, they're going to direct us on what to do. So you don't have to know anything about landscaping. You just have to be here and willing to do what they tell you. So if you can help with that, that would be great. We need about eight guys to help us with that. And you can let us know, men, if you can be here on Saturday at the Information Center. If you'll give them your name and your contact information, then we'll contact you this week about what time and an estimate about how long as well. So if you can have at least half the, if you can have half the day on Saturday, that would be, that would be terrific. And we'd hope to get you done as soon as possible. So guys, if, if you can be here at all, we need you to help with that. Give your name and contact information at the Information Center. Also, two weeks from tonight is our annual celebration dinner. And it's really our anniversary dinner because our church started 14 years ago in September. So every September we have this what we call celebration dinner to celebrate another year of God's grace to our church. We always have a great time of fellowship together. I encourage you to come, but you need to get tickets for that. And the tickets are $5 each, $20 maximum for a family. So if you have more than four in your family, it's not more than $20. But you need to get the tickets. Those are available in the uh, resource center that's out the back door and across the hall. And uh, we will have child care for the program portion, not the eating portion, but the program portion from uh, toddler age up through fifth grade. So you can count on that. And then what is the program? The program is always very simple. It consists entirely of hearing from you about how God has worked in your life over the last year. So this is the only time during the year that our church has testimonies from the congregation. And it gives you an opportunity to testify, bring glory to the Lord for what he's done done in your life. I would encourage a bunch of you to then think about how the Lord's worked in your life and how you can honor him with that uh, verbal testimony. I know it takes a little bit of guts to do that. You stand up in front of people and give your testimony. I'm giving you a few weeks to think about it, to get your courage up, to pray about it. Ask the Lord this, Lord, would you want me to say nice things about you? And and if he and if he audibly says no, then you're off the hook, okay? <laughs> but otherwise, you're on the hook to give a a testimony. And think about what the Lord's done in your life, and it can be short and sweet, but think about it ahead of time, and we will have microphones that just go around the room, and you can be right at your place there and give give testimony. So it's dinner, and then it's testimony of God's grace uh, from from God's people, and those are always an encouragement. So we take about an hour usually to do that. The program portion that we're speaking of then is that, taking an hour to do that, and that's when we'll have the child care for your for your children up through up through fifth grade. And then the last thing I wanted to mention is the card that's inserted in your program, both last week and this week, and will be for the next few, and that is for our community groups, which are going to start anew on October the 18th, Sunday night, October the 18th. So we have a month, and in that month, we need to know two things. How many of you that are not currently 
assigned and participating in a community group want to be because we'll assign you to one of the new groups that starts on October 18th. But we need to know who wants to be a part of that. And if you come in at the last minute and after we've done this for weeks and we've said fill out the card, check the box, turn in the card, and then some of you will do this. On Sunday morning, October the 18th, you will come and say, oh, hey, can I get in one of those groups? And the answer to you will be no. The door has been shut, it has been locked, and you are cast out into outer darkness. That will be, that will be our answer to you, okay? In all seriousness, it's really hard to get these groups together. It's hard to get people assigned to places that are close enough to where they live, to places that don't uh, affect their allergy problem. So we actually have on that enrollment card your allergy problems. You can't put a person's name, by the way, in the allergy, like, I'm allergic to so-and-so. So you can't pick your person that you want to be with. Uh, the whole idea here is for you to be in a group for a year with people that you haven't been with, and then next year we'll do the same same thing and mix up the groups. But it's very hard to get all that together. Once you get it together, if people come at the last minute and then say, "I want to be a part of one," and that unravels the whole that unravels the whole thing. So if you could do that ahead of time, turn in that card, check the box that says, "I want to be assigned to a group," and then the other box that's on that is, "I would be interested in knowing more about." hosting a community, hosting one of these at your house. Now, when you check that box, it doesn't mean that you're in for hosting, uh, just that you want more information about what's involved with that, what responsibilities would you have to open your home for a community group. But in order to have as many of these as we can and accommodate all the people who want to be a part of them, we need as many homes as possible. Ideally, we would have two homes that's assigned to every group. So if you have 10 or 12 groups, then you would have 20 or 24 homes that are trading off for that, that group to, to host the group at various times. So that's on there as well. We've already had a number of you volunteer to do that. Thank you. But some of you, I encourage you to think about whether God would have you open up your house uh, to host a community group. All right. Mind games. And where we are in this series is that a few weeks ago, I talked about the need for us to use our minds in a way that helps us do something that the Bible commands. And that is this, to discern. In fact, Philippians chapter 1 in verse 2, Philippians 1 in, excuse me, 1 in verse 10, 1 in verse 10. Paul, who wrote Philippians, is recording there a prayer that he prays for the Christians in the city of Philippi. And he tells the Philippians that one of the things I pray for you in Philippians 1 in verse 10 is that you will be able to discern what is best. Discern what is best. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at what discernment is in the Bible, and we defined it as distinguishing God's thoughts and ways from all others. Discernment is the divinely given ability to distinguish God's thoughts and ways from all others. To discern is this divinely given ability to distinguish God's thoughts and God's ways from all other thoughts and all other ways. And Paul tells the Philippians, I pray that you will develop that ability to discern, distinguish God's ways and thoughts, thoughts and ways from all others, so that you'll be able to discern what is best. Now, that brings you then to the issue of decision-making. For you and for me to be able to discern, distinguish, determine what is best, 
means that I'm faced with decisions. Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I purchase this? Purchase that? Should I go here or go there? We're faced with decisions all of the time, and all of those decisions require discernment. They all all require that I make the decision in line with the thoughts and the ways of God. And that means I have to distinguish what's best from what might be good or things that might be out-and-out evil or, or, or bad. So how do I do that? How do I engage? How do you engage in decision-making? Decision-making that is in line with the will of God. The common phrase that we use then is decision-making and the will of God. I want to make my decisions in a way that is consistent with what God wants, God's will. So how do you do that? And we started that process last week, and I recommended a book to you called that, Decision-Making in the Will of God. And we ordered 10 copies of that this week. They are in the Resource Center. I don't know how many copies were purchased during the break time, but I recommend uh, that book to you. So if there are some left, then you ought to go after we're done here, uh, out the back door and across the hall, and get that. It's a fairly thick book, but easy, easy to read. It's written on a popular level but I think gives an accurate view of what the Bible teaches about this important issue of decision-making in the will of God. In fact, I'm going to embarrass Pansy Combs because I was talking to her at our Labor Day picnic on Monday, and she was saying, you know, I read that book years ago, and I'm quoting now, it changed my life, Pansy says. So you've got an endorsement from Pansy Combs to buy that, to buy that book on decision-making and, and the will of God. And it had a, quite an impact on my own personal life as well, and I think I'll probably have the same uh, for you. So I encourage you to get that, and I'll try to distill this week and in the next few weeks some of what that book says about uh, what the Bible teaches regarding decision-making in the will of God. Last week, we looked at false ways, erroneous ways to try to determine the will of God. And we looked at feeling-based decision-making, feeling-based. That's one of the ways that people often make their decisions, and that is based upon their feelings kind of I've got a gut hunch that this is the right thing to do, that is assumed to be God somehow prompting you to do a particular thing because you're feeling a particular way uh, about it. So we say things like, I felt led of the Lord to do X. And that becomes the basis of whether or not a decision is best or or not for us. Feeling-based decisions. Now, The problem is not saying the Lord leads me or the Lord led me. The truth is God is providentially leading everything that happens in his world. And God allows circumstances to come into your life and come into my life that put us at the point of decision making. So God is actively involved in everything that's going on in our lives at all times. So to say that the Lord is leading you or leading me is a true statement. Just on its own, that's a true statement. The problem with the statement is I felt led of the Lord. It's the feeling piece. It's not the leading piece. It's the feeling piece. And determining that a particular course is the right course because you felt a particular way. God does not lead us through our feelings. And we often use passages out of context to 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 justify that. One is, as I mentioned last week, Philippians 4 and verse 7 that says the peace of God will that transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in in Christ Jesus the peace of God and so we then say things like in order for you to know whether a decision is the right one you need to feel a peace about it 
And if I feel a piece about it, then that's determined to be the right decision. But that's an erroneous way, feeling-based decision-making. Another erroneous way is outcome-based decision-making. A decision is, is known to be the right decision if the outcome was good. So if things came out well, then, uh, then that must have been a right or a good decision. But there are many times in the Bible where people made the wrong decision, even sinful decisions. But God in his grace has redeemed the circumstance and it has turned out well, not because of those people, but despite those people, it turned out well. So outcome-based decision-making is not... And sometimes the outcome is really hard and difficult. And people in the Bible wound up in jail or even killed. But it doesn't mean they made the wrong decisions. They may have been jailed or killed precisely because they made the right and most godly decision. And the world hates God's people. And therefore they got jailed or killed, persecuted. So outcome-based decision-making is not correct either. Feeling-based, outcome-based, opportunity-based decision-making is another erroneous way, and that is we say God opened the door for a particular thing. So I have this opportunity, and we divine, we determine that that must then be God's way of letting us know he wants us to go this particular path. That door that is opened may or may not be the path that God wants you to go. The mere fact that the door is opened, the mere fact that the opportunity is presented does not mean it's necessarily the Lord's will. The right way to do it as I gave you last week, is purpose-based decision-making. Purpose-based decision-making. That is, I know what my purpose is. I know from God's word why he has placed me here and what he has left me here to do. And now I align my decisions based upon whether or not they will contribute or detract from achieving that purpose. Purpose Purpose-based decision-making. I know why I'm here. I know why God has me here. I know what my purpose is. And I make my decisions based upon whether or not they will advance or detract from that purpose. Now, we'll explain that in the weeks to come. But we left off last week looking at two aspects of God's will that you've got to have straight if you're going to engage in this issue of decision-making in the will of God. Because the will of God falls into two categories. There's God's sovereign will... And then there is God's moral will. God's sovereign will is everything that happens. So my theology professor used to say, if you want to know uh, God's sovereign will for today, ask me tomorrow. And that'll be whatever happened the day before. So somehow in the inscrutable mind of God, God controls sovereignly everything that happens. And there's a sense in which then everything that happens falls within his will, that is his sovereign will. But not everything that happens in a fallen world is within God's moral will. There are plenty of things that happen in God's, that will happen today that are outside of God's moral will. There are people right now as we speak who are sleeping at home, and they should be in church, and God said so, and they're disobeying God. So I'm on a roll condemning those people who are sleeping in right now. And if I see any of you sleeping here, I will condemn you publicly in front of everyone. But in all seriousness, God says there are certain things we're to do. And if people routinely 
and I'm using scriptural language now, forsake the assembling of yourselves together, then we're disobeying what God says. Now that happens. It's happening right now. People unknown to me and unknown to you who should be in church who are not deliberately because they don't care about it. And they're disobeying what God says. That's not within God's moral will because God has said in his word, you're not to do that. God has said in his word, there are certain things you're to do and certain things you are not to do. And this is the expression of my moral will. In his sovereignty, he takes everything that happens, the good, bad, and the ugly, and he produces his purpose out of it. But only those things that are in keeping with his moral will are the things he wants done. So you have to distinguish those two things, God's sovereign will and God's moral will. And for me, the way I do that, and there's one way to do that, is to avoid using the God's will language as much as you can. Now, you can't, I say as much as you can. The books are called decision-making and the will of God. The Bible speaks of the will of God, so you can't avoid using it completely. But just to help you sort it out in your own mind, one way to think of it is God's plan versus God's desire. God's plan is his sovereign will. God's desire are those things within his sovereign control that are also in keeping with his, with his moral will. What he has said pleases him. What, is, what he has said he wants. What he has said he commends versus what he condemns. So God's plan versus God's desire. I quoted for you last week the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things which shall ever come to pass. That's God's sovereign will, everything that happens. And I said last week, the only reason that God can have a last book in the Bible called the book of Revelation. Some of you guys are going to start studying that on Tuesday, right? And gals in Bible study fellowship. And uh, so you're going to spend a year studying that. If you want to know what Bible study fellowship is, you can get information at the information center. But that starts this Tuesday. And for a year, you guys are going to be going through the book of Revelation. And the book of Revelation is God telling you how things are going to turn out at the end. Well, how, how can God tell you how they're going to turn out at the end? Here's why. Because God controls everything that's happening. And it's all moving inexorably. Right on schedule, right on time to God's appointed end. And that's why he can tell you about it beforehand in the book of Revelation. And just a pet peeve of mine and, and a I think I won't say this the entire year that you guys are taking the book of Revelation. But it's singular. So there is no such thing as the book of Revelations. I'm just saying. Okay, it's Revelation. And if you say that, I can depart in peace. All right? Revelation. And there are a bunch of verses in the Bible that speak of God's sovereign will. Isaiah 46, Remember the former things of old. I am God and there is none else. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. I say my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. I call a ravenous bird from the east. A man that executes my counsel from a far country. I have spoken it and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will also do it. I mentioned Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus said the very hairs of your head are numbered. But then the verse just before that he says... 
are not two sparrows sold for a penny, but yet not one of them falls to the ground except it be by the will of your father. And then he says, and the very hairs of your head are numbered. So down to the most minute details of hair falling out of your head when you run a brush through it, that's all within the sovereign will of God. Now, you can see this very starkly in the, the life and career and death, crucifixion of Jesus. Now, think about whether or not the death of Jesus was within the sovereign will of God. It was. And yet, at the same time, the people who executed Jesus are criminals. Now, think about that. They're held responsible for having killed Jesus even though it's through that very means that our redemption is accomplished. And you see that in passages like Acts chapter 4, Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. Acts 4, 27 and 28. Against the holy child Jesus, whom you have anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do Whatever your hand and your counsel determined beforehand should be done. So did God the Father know that God the Son was going to be executed when he came? Absolutely. In fact, Jesus is called the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. He came for the very mission of dying for the sins of his people. God not only knew that, God had ordained that. And yet the people who in their sin and their evil did that are still pronounced guilty by God. Now why? Because what they did is not within God's moral will. They killed an innocent man. But in that, in that act, God used that in his sovereignty in order to accomplish our, our redemption. So God's sovereign will is whatever comes to pass, good, bad, or ugly. And it can be summarized this way. God's sovereign will can be summarized as what God has chosen to allow. Whatever God has chosen to allow is within his sovereign will. Good, bad, ugly. But here's another aspect of the sovereign will of God. It's not only what God has chosen to allow. The sovereign will is of God is hidden. Known only to God. It's known only to God. Until after it happens. And that's why my theology professor could say, you want to know God's sovereign will for today? Ask me tomorrow. But I don't know it for today. I don't know it for this afternoon. I don't know it for the next five minutes, what God's sovereign will is. It's hidden and known only to God. And here's a third aspect of the sovereign will of God. The sovereign will of God cannot be missed. So if you talk about missing out on the will of God, you can't miss out on this will of God. (laughs) Because it's going to happen. The sovereign will of God cannot be missed. And so the sovereign will of God doesn't need to be pursued. You can't pursue the sovereign will of God because the sovereign will of God is just whatever comes to pass, it's going to happen. So when Jesus prays in the model prayer, or he tells tells us how to pray in the model prayer in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. And one of the things he says is, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Is Jesus saying pray for God's sovereign will? Well, we already know God's sovereign will is going to be done. When we pray for somebody that's going into the hospital, 
We often say, Lord, we'll pray that your will will be done. But see, the thing is, we already know that his will is going to be done in the, in the sense of his sovereign will. So when we ask for God's will, when we pray for God's will, when we pursue God's will, we're pursuing a different meaning of God's will. Not his sovereign will, but rather his moral will. The moral will of God. So there's the sovereign will of God that is whatever comes to pass. It's what God has chosen to allow. It's hidden before it happens, known only to God. Unless, a caveat, he's chosen to reveal it like in the book of Revelation before it happens. And it can't be missed and therefore it can't be pursued. The sovereign will of God. But then there is the moral will of God. And let me give you some passages in Scripture that speak of the moral will of God. 1 Timothy 2, verse Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4. 1 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. God will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God will have all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, let me just stop there for a moment. Is that God's sovereign will? If it were God's sovereign will that all people come to a knowledge of the truth, then how many people would come to a knowledge of the truth? Right? Everybody would. So that's clearly not an expression of God's sovereign will, because if it was, then all that would happen. But rather, it's an expression of God's moral will. Or as I call it, God's desire. There's God's plan and God's desire. Or 2 Peter 3, 9. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, again, is that an expression of God's sovereign will? If it's an expression of God's sovereign will, then nobody would perish. And everybody would come to repentance. But we know that not everybody comes to repentance. And we know that, indeed, not only do some perish, most perish. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the road that leads to life, Jesus said. And then 1 Thessalonians 4.3, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God, that you be sanctified. And then that passage goes on to say that you avoid sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God. Now, again, is that the sovereign will of God? If that's the sovereign will of God, then nobody engages in sexual immorality. And you live in 21st century America, and you know that ain't happening in our sensual culture. So that's an expression of the moral will of God or, or God's, God's desire. So just like the sovereign will of God can be summarized with the three things I gave you, it's whatever God has chosen to allow. It's hidden. It's known only to God. It can't be missed, therefore it can't be pursued. God's moral will can be summarized this way. God's moral will is what pleases God. It's what pleases God. Secondly, God's moral will has been revealed. It has been made known. He's told us what he wants, what he likes, what he desires, what, he, what pleases him. And thirdly, it can be missed, and therefore it must be pursued. That's God's desire. That's God's moral will. So 
With God's sovereign will, every event is within God's sovereign will. Within, in God's moral will, a given event may or may not be within his moral will. Now, here's a key distinction between those two. God's sovereign will, God's moral will. God's plan, God's desire. The key distinction between the two is revelation. Revelation. That is, has not the book of Revelation. I mean just the concept of Revelation, which is this. To make known. Revelation means to make known. And the question is, has God made it known or not? And his sovereign will, with the exception of predictive prophecy, he has not made known. You don't know what that is until the next day, until after it happens. But his moral will, he has revealed. He has made it known. He has told you what his desire is, what pleases him, what he wants and what he does not want. God's sovereign will is revealed after the fact, while God's moral will is revealed where? I'm asking, where is God's moral will made known? In Scripture. So if you want to know what pleases God, what God wants, what God desires, then you've got to read the book that God wrote. Where God tells you about himself and what he's like. Where you read... Two-thirds of your Bible is narrative, that is, it's narrating God's interaction with events and people. And you read that narration and you see there the kinds of things that please God and that God wants and that God desires. So there are passages that out and out tell you, I've read some of them, things that God desires and wants. And then there are other things that you glean from reading the narrative of the story of God interacting with people and events. And you learn what God wants and desires and approves versus condemns but it comes by revelation god making it known it's revealed in scripture god's sovereign plan is known only to him but god's desire his moral will has been given in scripture and you see those two come together in a passage in the first part of your bible deuteronomy deuteronomy 29 29 deuteronomy 29 29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God. What would that be? God's sovereign will. But those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. I don't know his sovereign will until after it happens. But these... Things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. So how am I going to know God's will? I've got to distinguish what I mean by God's will. Sovereign will, you can't know that till after it happens. We're talking about his moral will, and that has to be made known. Thankfully, God has made it known. God has revealed it in Scripture. Now, one issue that I want to deal with before we, before we move on is how many wills then God has. I've said there's... God's sovereign will, and there's God's moral will. And God's moral will, like everything, is actually subsumed under his sovereign will. Because the sovereign will includes everything, the good, bad, and the ugly. And his moral will is the good. That's one part of that, then. But some people believe that God has three wills. And they base this belief in three wills on Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 says this. 
Therefore, verse 1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Let me stop there. I urge you, brothers and sisters, therefore, in view of God's mercy. In view of what mercy? And why does it say, therefore, in verse 1 of Romans 12? Here's why. Because the mercy you're to be viewing is based upon the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans. And now having laid out in these 11 chapters the marvelous mercy of God in the gospel, in the good news centered on Jesus. Having laid that out, now chapter 12 starts this way. Therefore, because of all the stuff you've just heard about, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Now, we're going to see the will of God piece of this in a minute. But that's, that's part of God's, that's what pleases God. That's God's revealed will. That's God's moral will. That's God's desire. He's telling us, in view of the mercy that I've shown you in the gospel, here's how you should respond to that. Offer yourselves as sacrifices. Sacrifices are normally killed and consumed. But no, you're a sacrifice that's alive. But while you're alive, live as a sacrifice to God. Because this is the proper response to the good news of the gospel. And then verse 2 says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So if you're somebody who is, in response to the good news of the gospel, living in a way that is a living sacrifice for God, which is your proper response to the good news of the gospel, then that means not being conformed to the pattern of this world, but being renewed by the tran- being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then, and I might add only then, will you be able to test and approve what God's will is. And then it describes that will of God. God's good and pleasing and perfect will. Now some have taken Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 to refer to three different aspects of God's will. There's God's good will. There's God's pleasing will. And there's God's perfect will. And your objectives say they, this is all wrong. I'm just telling you this is what they say. Of course, you want God's perfect will. You don't just want God's good will. God's good will is like, you know, a good product at a discounted price. Okay? Or an imitation of a good product. You're not getting the brand name here. Okay? You're getting a cheaper version. I mean, it's better than being outside of the will of God. It's good. But there's good, better, and best. Good, pleasing, and perfect. And all that's wrong. Because what that verse is saying is this. God has one moral will for you. And that one moral will is all three of those things. It is good. And it is pleasing. And it is perfect. 
So you're not looking to try to find God's, God's perfect will as opposed to his good will. Now, why would you care about that? Here's why. If you believe that there's God's perfect will, but then there's just sort of his acceptable will, his good will, take decision-making on the issue of, like, marrying someone. And you're making the choice to marry someone, and you're, you, know, you're, you have a relationship with them, and you get serious, you get engaged. He or she... You know, is a good person. They're committed to the Lord. You know, all right, let's get married. But you always have this nagging feeling. Was that God's good will? Or maybe just God's pleasing will? But somewhere out there, there was God's perfect will. And I'll tell you when this rears its head. It's after you get married and they do something you don't like. You're good, but you're not better. And you're certainly not best. I could have done better than you, that's for sure. And you don't know how many people have told me that. And so, and, it's, and then, you know, we're, I'm joking a bit, but when people have big problems in their marriage, then they start to think, you know, I married the wrong person. I married the wrong person. I should have married, you know, this other person that I dated. I'm convinced now that that was God's perfect will. And now I can never be in God's perfect will. Because I married the wrong person. Now here's the other kicker to that approach. In the scenario I just gave, you supposedly married the wrong person. But let's suppose the culprit is not you. Let's suppose the perfect person you were supposed to marry... They're the culprit, and they married the wrong person. So they go and blow God's perfect will for you by marrying the wrong person. And that's a whole chain reaction now of God's perfect will having been blown for all kinds of people because this fool married the wrong person. Now, we, you know, we smile about that, we laugh about that, But I am telling you that there have been generations of people who have grown up with that misunderstanding of the will of God and who believe that very thing. I've had to counsel people out of this idea that I married the wrong person, I'll never be in God's perfect will. So when you read Romans 12 too, you're not reading of three different wills of God. You're reading about the moral will of God revealed in Scripture that has all three of these qualities. It is good, and it is pleasing, and it is perfect. Now, you want that will. You're called, and I'm called to pursue that will. What I want to do next week is uh, deal in part next week with an excursus. I just like to say the word excursus sometimes. But it means like an excursion, just sort of take a side trail that's related to this. And here's the side trail I want to start with next week. If we've got these two aspects of God's will, his sovereign will and his moral will, then how should I view my own struggles and my own sin? Now, if you're thinking about it rightly, you should view your sin and your struggles 
the way God describes them in Scripture. That your sin and my sin are a violation of his moral will. And you should own it and admit it and confess it. But what I've found over the years is people who confuse God's sovereign will and his moral will say things like, well, this is all in the will of God. They're confusing them, right? And in so doing, they justify their sin. And not only do they justify their sin, they become victims of God's sovereign will and the circumstances that he's chosen to place them in. So I want to deal with that at least at the beginning of next week. And then as part of the remaining three weeks that we have, I want to look at the passages in Scripture that are used to justify some of the erroneous approaches to decision-making that I gave you. The feeling-based decision-making, outcome-based decision-making, opportunity-based decision-making. All right? Let's ask God to help us as we serve Him this week. Father, thank You for this day that is the Lord's day. And it is so called on this first day of the week because it is on the first day of the week that the Lord Jesus rose from the grave. And so, Lord, every first day, every Sunday, every Lord's Day, we are celebrating the fact that Jesus is alive and that Jesus is Lord. So thank you, Lord, for allowing us to celebrate the fact that you are Lord, that you are alive, and that you are coming again. Thank you for moving in our hearts to cause us to want to celebrate that and to celebrate that in communion with your people. Thank you that we were able to do that today and look into the pages of your word and learn. Learn about you, learn about your ways, and learn about your will. I pray, Lord, this week that you will help me and you will help us to go into the sovereign circumstances that you have defined for us, the twists and the turns that each day this week will take, the circumstances that will come that are not to our liking. Help us to remember that they are all within the sovereign will of God. And then remembering that, take comfort and act in ways that are in keeping with the moral will of our God. We ask you, Lord, to grant us safety this week. Help us to represent you in a way that honors you and bring us back together next Lord's Day. In Jesus' name, amen.